Ruiz. Simon, were your records um, increasing in popularity? Or were you kind of staying at the same level? Or what was happening in terms of, you know, fame, if you will? Well, I think what was happening was that 2005 was, if memory serves, was just around about the time that the internet was really getting going um, in terms of music and in terms of um digital mp3 type replacing cds as a medium because they, i remember our distributor sort of introducing the idea to me and me being a bit suspicious of it just thinking what's what's this all about and then very soon thinking oh so you don't have to pay to have cds pressed but people can still listen to your music whenever wherever they are in the world and you'll get paid for it sign me up to that um and so around about that time, uh, websites and email and all that was really just starting to become normal. I don't know if this sounds like I was way behind the curve, but um, I just remember opportunities started to come in because the American thing, uh, the, our first American opportunity came in 2004 and it was only three weeks after I launched the band's website, which had contact information on it that somebody emailed to say, would you like to come and play in the US? Mm -hmm. Prior to that, the only way that you would know about us is if you collected seven inch singles or something like, you, you know, so I, I don't think we were distributed particularly widely. Um, so I think probably the internet was the key to us not becoming popular as such, but just us reaching people further afield. Um, and we were just starting to to get attention in the US, in California and Colorado, around about that time, I seem to remember. Just people who were, were into um, other funk bands like, are, are you familiar with Carl Denson? Um, yes. And the, the Grey the Boy All-Stars, because we did an opening tour well, they did a tour, we opened for them. And that was when we were kind of put in front of the same fans that we have now for the first time. And and people went, oh, wow, these, these Brits are making this funky sound as well. And um, it started to just seem like something that we could actually do for a career possibly at that point. So yeah, I guess 2005 was maybe the start of the idea that this could, really work were, were you guys or any of you still working you know other jobs at that point or um i i remember having to make a decision 
because I, I wanted to be I wanted to work in film and TV and I, I had started to get freelance work as, a, as assistant camera person and I remember having to make the decision um, a few years before when Eddie said look I don't want you to send me a, a replacement drummer for this regular gig that we have like either I, I, I want you to either be in the band or, or, or not but this isn't the kind of band where it doesn't matter who's playing that's not what this project is about. And I said, yeah, I understand that. And he said, so you are going to have to make a choice between going off and doing a, a, a movie for four weeks or being in the band. And at the time, I was earning almost nothing from the band. And I'd started to make some money uh, working in film and TV. And so, and I was in my mid-20s and it was a bit of a painful decision. But um, I'm trying to remember... I'm sure we must have had other, I think we just tried to do part-time things um, and survive on not very much <laughs> and do gigs that like a regular gig. Maybe we did restaurant gigs and other slightly humiliating things. Weddings. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All of that stuff. Just so we were trying to make it work um, whilst at the same time, trying not to compromise too much on what we were doing with the, with the sound. Um, what was it like when you first came to America? Well, it was a, it was really eye opening because the, the the first show we did was at the House of Blues in Chicago, and that was opening for the Grey Boy All Stars for two consecutive nights. So um, we were in this huge venue, as far as we were concerned, and even though we were the opening band, there was there was still half the number of people who would come to the show were, were there while we were playing. And that was quite a lot, you know, it's still several hundred. And uh, they seemed to really like it. And we just thought, oh, this maybe, maybe it's gonna make sense over here. Because we'd started to lose faith in the UK because it didn't seem like it was gaining any traction. And it seemed like what we were doing was a bit too specialist. So it was instrumental and Instrumental is a bit a bit of an ask for most uh, British audiences. Well, I think it's a bit of an ask for most audiences everywhere, but the US is so big that you've got these sub sort of cultures of people that are into obscure niche stuff, but there are loads more of them because <laughs> there's just more people there. Because so, the, the Grey Boys were, seen, were kind of doing what we were doing um, and they were doing it to big audiences. And there was a bit of vocals involved, but mainly not. It was mainly playing instruments. And we thought, okay, this is this is where we need to be. And we've been touring in the States since then. You know, it's now 2020. And so what's that, 16 years? Yikes. Wow. So, yeah. Yeah. What about uh, from a culture standpoint, um, what was your impression of, of America? Uh, well, the... the, the I mean, the thing we noticed, um, <laughs> so it, at the airport, um, uh, we had a sax player touring, traveling with us, I think, and, and uh, he ordered a bagel and he said, oh, um, hello, uh, can I have a cream cheese bagel? And the woman just went, what kind of bagel? He's like, um, a, a great cream, cream cheese bagel. What kind of bagel? Uh, a, cre a cream cheese bagel. He didn't understand because um, 
Britain has a kind of post-World War II rationing mindset, which is totally at odds with the just absolute vastness of choice that you guys have in the States. And we've been raised with this, you know, same as if you go into a cafe and you say, I'll have, you know, egg and chips. No one says, how do you want your eggs? It's like you'll get fried eggs. And the, even the idea of sunny side up was not, that wasn't something you said. It's just, that's how they come. And in the, in the States, everything you say is met with another question. And it's like, oh, I'll just have the salad. What dressing? I don't know. What You have dressing on salad, do you? And it's just like endless series of questions. And if you don't know what all the options are, you end up looking and feeling really stupid. So this 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 bagel situation, we eventually realised it was, you know, do you want a, a, a seeded bagel or this? Uh, the, yeah. I mean, I can't even tell you what types of bagel there are now either. But we're just so used to getting what we're given. And that was probably like a really big culture shock. And then the and then the other one that's more relevant to the to the job we were doing was this idea that people would drive five or six hours to go and see a concert that they liked. And we just like, what? How is that possible? Like, if there's a band playing that I like and they and they're playing in Manchester, which is forty miles away, but not Leeds, I'm still thinking, oh, that's a shame they're not coming to Leeds. <laughs> I won't get to see them. <laughs> and then people will say, oh yeah, we drove. You know, from you know Idaho, uh, and then we're driving back after the show. What? Yeah, it's like probably take us a, probably only take us four hours to get back because it's been the night time. <laughs> what are you crazy people like so obsessive and so de dedicated to it? But it was really uh, heartwarming to know that for some people, it's so important to them that they're willing to to do that and. Yeah, it's not something you find over here. <laughs> so your next, you uh, came up with 102% in 2006. And so that's, uh, what, fourth studio album. You know, you guys could have just been mainly a touring act, right? I mean, why did you decide to keep coming with studio albums so consistently throughout your whole career so far? I think it, it might be because we've never really made enough money just touring and we've never really made enough money just from the records. Mm. Um, so one without the other wouldn't be enough. Is That's one side of it. The other side of it is that we, um, we get bored of playing the same tunes. And if we make an album, we're generating at least 10 or 11 new tunes many of which we can then put into the live set. So in, in a lot of the time, it's just for our own amusement that we're, that we're doing it. Um, but it, it does mean that now we have probably a potential repertoire of, I don't know, a hundred tunes or something. Um, and it would be nice, some of them just get mothballed and, and then maybe after five or 10 years of neglect, one of us will say, oh, do you remember that tune? And someone will try and remember it. And then we might revive it for a while. And then it's like meeting an old friend. Oh, that, that's nice, isn't it? Why don't we? And we do that for a bit. And we, and we do that quite a lot, sort of like crop rotation. Um, but even now I'm thinking it's, it's, it's high time we did another record because um, 
the latest record, which is Shake It, featuring uh, Lamar Williams Jr., is the vocalist who we're working with at the moment. We recorded that in December 2018. And that's already a long time ago, as far as we're concerned, because we like to do a record every year to 18 months, I guess. What? So I'm starting to get a bit antsy. What's the composing process like for you guys? So, you know, how long does it generally take to come up with the material? Um, when it's instrumental stuff, that has been uh, often just everyone is prepared to bring in a, the bare bones of an idea. And then we will jam it through and Eddie will take charge of turning that into an arrangement. And sometimes that can be, as I mentioned before, that can happen within 20 minutes and then bang, it's down. Sometimes someone will write something that's got, a, you know, a main section, a melody and a bridge, and they're sort of bringing it almost, almost fully formed to the table. And then it's just a question of everybody working out what they're going to play and how they're going to play it. Sometimes we will just jam with nothing from a start, starting point. Just, I'll start playing, Pete will join in, and we can generate some tunes just from that process. So there's different ways of doing it. The, the latest record that we did, because it's um, mainly vocal, we, we had a session, this, was, this, is, this doesn't usually happen, but it was a, a sort of two or three day session a couple of months prior to the recording of the album where people just sort of brought sketches in and shared them and then those sketches were recorded and shared and then when we went in to actually record we had some things to develop but it, it happened in the studio a, a lot of the lyric writing for the last album happened in the studio at the mic with Lamar standing there and whoever's helping write lyrics sitting there with a notepad and saying try this line and he tries the line and we're like yeah that works and then just almost doing it line by line um so it, it's, there's just no one way of doing it for us it, it all depends on the song but i don't know how the next album is, is going to happen like i don't know where that's going to come from it, did you ever have instances where the uh, band members might bring in something and you guys collectively think oh, it's kind of cool but maybe not really right for new master sounds uh, yeah and we've had stuff where we've worked on something and it's just hasn't gone anywhere and it's been discarded and forgotten about and i have no memory of those things because once yeah even when we're recording the album and and we've got a song that we we are keeping as soon as it's recorded and we move on, we can't actually remember anything about it. And it's only when Eddie sends us a mix a few months later that we go, oh, I remember that now. But it, it, if you're doing so many things in the same day, you just have, you keep them in your head for the length of time it takes to get a take that works. And then you move on to the next thing. And then by the end of the day, you've no memory of what happened at the beginning of the day. So it's, that's, that can be quite a treat hearing back that what you did um and not going, oh right that sounds great <laughs> sometimes i have to learn my own drum parts and sometimes i find it difficult i'm thinking what how how did i play that and why did i make that so difficult and um now it's really difficult to learn and so 
yeah, it feels like I'm learning someone else's tune sometimes. That's funny. On that 102% album, um, first off, why why that title? Um, I well, the I think it was a, it was a sort of joke based on um, sporting exaggeration when when football managers say, "I want you to give 102% today," oh. and um, I, I, I something about at the time we would. We were giving it we decided we were going to give it our all and and put a, a load of effort into it and so we came up with that as a sort of a, a joke thing about you know um sports people who can't add up um but the design of it which is a kind of psychedelic uh paisley trippy cover that was very much influenced by the fact that we had spent the previous year hanging out with californian hippies at festivals and there was a lot of tie-dye and a lot of LSD and we were very surprised that this scene still existed um, in, you know, in 2006 or seven or something and that they were uh, receptive to British people playing funk music as well, which was, so there's, there's some slightly psychedelic elements to some of that record, just a little slightly psychedelic. Soldier. Yeah, exactly. Like paranoid, I would say. Yeah, which is what, uh, which has got Pete, our bass player, doing some lyrics, and there's a lot of delay and and um, yeah, weird sound effects and stuff. Yeah, um, so that's where that came from. I like uh, Thirty Three, real funky. Oh, it's great! Yeah, and we, we that's another staple in the live set, and uh, that's that starts with bass, and the bass is quite busy, and I I, I can always see when it's coming up in the set list. And I, if Pete's a bit tired, Pete's the bass player, he sees it and he's like, oh, no, because he has to go. <laughs> and for me, it's the easiest mid-tempo, spacious funk groove. And, and I like it. So it's the, it's the hardest one physically for him and the easiest one for me. And then we sometimes have tunes where it's the opposite. And he looks at it and he, he looks at me and goes, oh, and I'm like, Ugh. I'm going to be really uptight for the four minutes and he just gets to relax playing long notes. So, yeah. You guys already came with your second live album from San Francisco um, by 2008. Uh, yes. Um, Speaking of like hippie culture. <laughs> that was, that was recorded over two nights at the independent in San Francisco. And I wonder if we were, I think we, we may have still been wearing the suits for that. Um, they hadn't quite gone moldy by that point. San Francisco horn section for some of it. But uh, I don't remember very much other than that it was that we were we were in a good place in terms of um, the the band. We were gigging a lot and the communication was good and the arrangements were, were good and the audiences were good and the whole thing just felt easy. And so it was a good period to capture for a live record. Might have to go back and listen to it. Um, yeah, because it's it's been a while. But yeah, it's, it's a different thing from Live at La Cova. Um, I think it's a little bit more aggressive. There's maybe a bit more energy to it. I'm not sure. Yeah, you, you'd be better off talking about it than me because I mean, I think, I, well, and just being in that area, I mean, it's got to be different because of the ge geography and also the years that had transpired for you guys. 
but you know when you're in the heart of where you know funk music came from Sly and the Family Stone and that's where Tower Power emanates from yeah, um, okay. yeah. Yeah, so yeah. much great music um, from from San Francisco and the Bay Area over the years so I'm sure some of that rubbed off yeah well there's a there's a club in um, uh, in San Francisco that's just it's just opposite the Fillmore called the Boom Boom Room and it was it was opened I think it was owned by John Lee Hooker at one point with a uh, another guy and the, the other guy is a friend of ours and I think the first show we ever did in San Francisco was in this tiny club and it's you can only fit maybe a hundred people in it and only the first two rows can even see the band because it because the stage is low it's a bar essentially um but it's just such a sweaty intimate thing and um I remember that we got to play there quite late on in our career after we'd played the Fillmore um we we were trying to find a San Francisco show and the the other venues that we should have been were booked up when the dates we needed so we ended up doing I think three or four consecutive nights at the Boom Boom Room instead of doing a bigger venue and I just remember thinking this is so funky because you you're this far away from the audience everyone's packed in so everyone can smell everybody and and as we know that's what the funk is <laughs> so absolutely um and it, and it, and those gigs just went on like for till four in the morning and it was it was proper informal improvisation not not mediated by a big pa system and a big very much direct communication between the the musicians and the audience and um that's one of my fond memories of, of San Francisco. And I don't know if we'll ever be able to do that again, but just because the economics of doing a tiny venue don't tend to work out mm. um, so well. And also a few people complained that, you know, they came to see us, but they didn't actually see us because they were stuck at the back. And I guess the only way something like that might work now is if you did a bigger show and then you still had energy to do some kind of other thing later that night or something. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, funnily enough, um, we did just play, uh, just after Christmas, we played a venue called the chapel and the, there was an after party at the boom, boom room, but because we'd flown in from Europe, uh, just the day before, by the time it, we'd finished our show at, I don't know, 1230 AM, it was already 8.30 a.m. back home and I was just feeling completely frazzled and all I could do was go back to the hotel. And also we're getting on a bit now. Like we, we're all in our 40s or 50s and uh, the idea of doing that show and then going on to do the after party for another few hours and then going home at four in the morning, I just, I couldn't, I, I needed to have at least adjusted to West Coast time and I hadn't done so. Yeah. Yeah. Well, traveling that day, that's understandable. Mm. Um, the new master sounds featuring Dion Charles, plug and play. Um, like attitude on that one. Uh, altitude. If you altitude. And the reason uh, it's called altitude is because we had been, we'd, we'd done all these shows in Colorado and we played in Aspen, for example, and had uh, real problems like hearing, because the air is so thin, 
it does strange things to the sound, given that air is the medium through which sound travels. So for a while, when we were playing in those kind of places, we were just kind of freaked out, wondering why it doesn't feel right or the same. Something was off. And then eventually we realized, oh, okay, it's because there isn't as much air. So anything you do, you've got to do more of it to move, to make the air move as the same as what you would normally make it in at sea level. And uh, also we were getting out of breath and thinking, don't normally get out of breath doing a solo or playing, you know. And at one point I remember having oxygen on stage. So the, the concept of elevation altitude was um, something that we were, we'd been dealing with in our touring of, of Colorado. And that particular tune um, keeps changing key, I think. I think it just keeps going up a notch and up a notch and up a notch and all the way and then eventually fades out if if memory serves because i haven't we haven't played it for over 10 years um but that was to represent it just getting higher and higher and higher when we were driving around the mountains there you go <laughs> that makes sense i've been there many times beautiful um out there and some good music too still never been to red rocks i hope one day well, we have played there twice so far, but wow. only as the opening band. Um, it, it would be great if we could get to the point where we could actually headline the place. Um, I'm just not sure how long that would take or if what, what, what it would take, because <laughs> we've been doing this a long while. But like maybe maybe a double bill or something with with another band of equal size. But you, um, it's it's even even opening is just an amazing experience it's it's uh just a stunning location and also opening is quite fun because you do your show and then you've got the rest of the evening to hang out and enjoy being at red rocks having finished work so <laughs> it does have that going for it the next record i think is definitely one of my favorites overall um 10 years on Yes, um, which was unimaginatively titled because it was 2009 and we formed in, in 1999. Um, and uh, that, yeah, the, there's some, some of the, I like the production on that record a lot. Um, it just well, cooks from front to back, that one to me. I mean, oh. yeah. Um, um, MRG. Yeah, that, which, uh, that stands for Mark's Red Guitar and our friend Mark, uh, who owns a bar in Leeds that we used to play at, he was having guitar lessons with Eddie at one point or jamming with him. And I think when they were jamming together, they sort of came up with that groove. And so Eddie called it MRG, short for Mark's Red Guitar. But that's really fun. And it's a, it, it's a slow groove and it involves hand claps from the audience. And we still play that one too. And it's, it's yeah, it's just got a really great, spacious, uh, funky groove to it. Yeah, it, kind of, it swings is like what I like to. It's yeah, got like a, a swinging funk to it. Um, Celo is um, kind of reminds me a little bit of like um, like a almost like a Scorpio or something. If you know that old Dennis Coffee track, you know it's faster, funky, a little bit of an early seventies kind of feel. Like early seventies jazz funk. Or, yeah, yeah, um, and we. I first, does it have horns and percussion on it? I've got a feeling that it does. And I think it's one of those ones that we didn't end up being able to do live very often because 
the arrangement required more people than we had. So, because there's some extra guests on the record. So it's, it's one that gets requested every now and again by fans and we're just thinking, oh, we don't know how to play that. <laughs> so that was more of an out, a studio track, I guess. Did you feel like that album though, is that, is that one that stands out for you at all or is it just me? Uh, no, it, it, it is one of my favorites. So does it, I think it's San Frantico on that one as well. Um, I, I wish I, I should have this up on my screen, shouldn't I? Um, so what's the track list? Let me um, turn it over here for you. Um, San Frantico, Soul Shine, Chocolate Chip, Narcolepsy, Flimsy, Dusty Groove, The Road to Fuji Rock. Oh yeah, so uh, Flimsy, Dusty Groove, Fuji Rock, San Frantico, MRG, they're still staples of the live set. So that's the sign of, a, of an album that we like is, is if we're still playing songs from it um years later we also did uh, a song uh, with a uh, singer american singer grace potter grace potter um who is more of a rock and roller um and that is on the cd but it didn't make it onto the digital release because of some wranglings with her she was on a major record label at the time but that is a kind of a kind of soul funk country soul funk thing which I don't know if you can, I'll maybe send you an MP3 of it because you, you won't get it online. Um, but that's also on that record. But it just didn't, it didn't get the digital release. Send um, it over, love to hear it. Yeah. Uh, right. Carry on. <laughs> <laughs> Out on the uh, fault line, was that from being in California so much with the earthquakes? We recorded in San Francisco. <laughs> yeah. San Andreas influenced? Yes, exactly that. And the the um, the cover is a painting uh, of you know a geographical fault that we licensed from an artist based in California. I seem to remember. You don't get those in the UK, right? No, we don't. I mean, we once maybe once fracking really kicks in, then things will start to go a bit topsy turvy. But we I don't think we've got any big um, fault fault lines anywhere near the UK, to my knowledge. I moved my wife out from the East Coast to California, and um, she had never felt earthquake, and she kind of flipped out when she first did. It's, yeah, I mean, I have. I was in Oakland uh, when I first experienced one, and it's just quite disconcerting, isn't it? <laughs> and I think um, uh, maybe I've, there's been a small one in Japan when we've been there, because that, that place is very precarious as well. Mm -hmm. um, but you're, you're safe, aren't you, in Charlotte now? You know what? I thought so, but there's actually been a couple small ones that I felt out here. I think one was centered in Virginia. And oh. I was like, I thought there were no earthquakes out here. But every once in a while, I guess they have a very small one. So, right. Yeah. Um, but that breaks from the border wreck. Um, no, wait. I'm, I skipped breaks from the border, didn't I? Yeah. 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 I, mean, I, I want to mention on, on that record... Um, on the border, really funky. You like that? So that yeah. was when we 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 were trying to sing. Uh, we we sort of realised that if we did, if we attempted to do some vocals, we might be able to engage people a little bit more. Um, and we the scene that we were on had some pretty shaky vocals on it, 
uh, like other other bands and just where you've got the feeling like okay it doesn't maybe really matter whether they can sing or not that well and none of us are particularly good at singing we thought we'd do the gang vocal thing we'll hide behind each other we'll just have some sort of chanting anthem stuff that we can just to lift and on the border was was one of those uh, and that the, re the reference is that we're on the border between the US and Mexico because it was recorded in um, Torneo, Texas, near El Paso. In fact, it, I think the, the the ranch that we were on, the recording studio, if you if you walked maybe a mile, um, there's the border, and then the other side is that awful place. Is it uh, Juarez, which is where there's all the yeah. Yeah, the, um, the the sort of drug cartels are chopping people's heads off and stringing them up in the street and stuff. So we were very close to that, um, but it, it was um, it was a residential studio, and that was our first attempt at doing quite a lot of vocals. So there's a, there's, there's tunes on there that make me cringe a little bit. And I, that track, though, in terms of the like title and subject matter and the group vocal. Um, made me th think of war, the group war, you know, because they would do kind of yeah, that, that kind of know, with the group vocals and yeah. We actually we, we did a show in uh, in Hawaii in Honolulu, and I think it was the Blue Note, and we were we were just coming in as war were just finishing a three day residency in the same venue. So I remember meeting the drummer on the steps of the hotel and. Uh, Exchange. Carol Brown, I think, is yeah, Carol Brown. Yeah, um, and chatting about oh, we've just come in to do the gig that you've just finished doing, and um, so yeah, that that record. I think well, that's G Jesus. That's a, the title, right? Oh, or, Joseph. Joseph. Uh, yeah. Joseph. It's a, Joseph. So it's the word Jesus with the e replaced for an o because yeah. Joe is our piano player, and it's a real JB kind of track that one exactly so it's just a groove that, that really goes on the same all the way through the track and he is doing kind of minimalist piano jam over the top but it was very much jb influenced and because it it doesn't do anything or go anywhere it's, there, there's not really a tune or a, and there isn't a, i don't even think there's a bridge it's like a it, vamp yeah just a vamp yeah um but it's a vamp that we really believe in and um and it sounds great. And I, I, whenever I hear that, I think, "Oh, okay, I'm glad we glad we put that one down." I mean, we we probably wouldn't dare do that live um, and present it as an actual tune because it doesn't really do anything. Um, but it, I think it, I think it works as a piece of music really well. Yeah, and maybe to use it uh, to bridge to other tracks. You're right. Actually, we should we should just pull that groove in and yeah, quote from it or something or. Yeah, bed something on top of it. Noted. <laughs> back back to the uh, Fault Line record, though. Uh, Yo Mama, uh, it's pretty funky. Yeah, so uh, that was, I think me and Pete, the bass player, wrote that and did the main vocal for it. And um, the, the vocals were recorded, they were overdubbed, and we put quite a lot of work into them and they were layered. And when it came to playing it live, no, none of us really felt that confident singing the verses. So ever since that album was released, we've been doing a live version where 
Joe just plays an instrumental verse on piano and then we all sing the chorus. But so the verse, you never hear the verses anymore. Um, but since we, um, we started working with Lamar Williams Jr., uh, we're trying to persuade him to learn the song so that we so that we can actually do it as a as a proper vocal song. But that's still fun to do, and it's got a great groove. And can you get it? It's hot too. Oh, I like that. Yeah, that's got a really amazing Hammond solo. Um, and slightly self-conscious lyrics about us being British guys playing soul music or something. <laughs> Um, that gets requested, but we always have to say no now because none of us can remember the lyrics. <laughs> That's the problem when you have vocals. You got to remember the lyrics yeah. too. Um, Make Up Your Mind. That one to me, uh, I feel like reminds me a little bit of like a mandrill or something like that. You know, Mandrill or um, oh, who's the guy? Brian Auger, who is a British Hammond player from 60s, 70s sort of era. Still going. Um, he toured but, a lot uh, with um, Julie um, Driscoll. Was the no the animals Eric Burden. There were a lot of double bills with uh, those guys out in California I, with Brian Auger and, yeah. and the animals. Um, yeah, so that one, it's that's quite an aggressive sound, and it's got that sort of slightly psychedelic Hammond sound. It's much more of a '60s track for me, I think, than a than a '70s one. As is generally either 60s or 70s in, in terms of its approach, I would say. Um, but that's that's fun and, and that's one that I've tried to revive because the lyrics are quite minimal. Like there's not much to learn, maybe four lines. So if I can persuade the guys to do it, then um I think we, we have done it maybe in the last couple of years. I'd like to bring it back in. I endorse that. But yeah, it does sound even more retro than some of the other stuff. Right. Yeah, 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 exactly. Um, the next uh, album was, my title's cut off here. Um, do you remember the next album? So after Out on the Fault Line. It was uh, Therapy. Therapy, yeah. Therapy, yeah, Therapy, yeah. Therapy was recorded in Denver in around about 2014, I believe. And that is the album that has... The whistle song on it which is uh, a potentially irritating instrumental tune with a lead whistle um and that track has probably earned us more money than any other track we've ever done how so uh, it was used on a, a on a us tv and internet commercial uh, for a while and then uh later it was used as the theme music for a Japanese current affairs TV program that ran every day for maybe two years or something. Um, so that, that song has been very good to us. Um, did, did you have somebody that actively, you know, marketed it for that kind of purpose or how did no, that happen? It, it, it would be lovely to think that we could make these kind of things happen. Cause we, it's, we're kind of overdue another uh, windfall really. Cause, uh, sometimes the, the the coffers start to run dry and you think where's, where's who's going to save us <laughs> um and uh and annoyingly these kind of things they just seem to be random out of the blue and and there doesn't seem to be anything you could in fact it feels like the more you try the more you're trying to have people working your stuff the more 
maybe people are like, mm, they see, maybe they seem too keen. Like, <laughs> maybe they need this too much. I think people who, people who use music for, for TV and film and adverts, I think they like to think that the reason they're doing their job is that they find the music, you know, like they're hunting for it, they're digging it out. And that's what gives them the satisfaction. So probably they they probably don't like it when people are trying to sell it to them. Mm. Um, but it just means that you can never predict when anything's going to be discovered. And it's used. like when something goes viral, yeah. Yeah. Um, but we that that song was uh, we've only ever done two music videos, um, and that was our second. And it was really it was a fun and silly one where we all um, wore. It was a bit like Clockwork Orange, and we all wore white and had heavy eyeliner on. It was a kind of comedy situation, um, and I just remember thinking, "Oh, okay, we're going to make a video. Hope it's." I mean, we 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 maybe did it for about like fifteen hundred dollars or something, but it was still like fifteen hundred dollars. I was thinking, "Is this a waste of money?" Yeah. And uh, and that was the one track that really gave us a bit of payback. So. Um, I was thinking, right, okay, that was fair enough. I, I had no idea whether the video had anything to do with anybody discovering the track. There's no way of, of telling, but um, I'm glad we did it. And uh, what else is on therapy? Um, oh, I like uh, Slow Down. Oh, yeah. Real, so nice, this, real nice sax on that one. That's um, a guy called Ryan Zoidis who plays with a band called Lettuce. Lettuce, um, I'm a big fan, yeah. yeah. And they, they just got nominated for a Grammy. Um, they did, yeah. They didn't win, but yeah, they were nominated. Yeah. So Ryan, I think, was in Denver at the time, and um, we just got him in to do that track. But it slowed down. Um, it was written because Eddie had broken his ankle. And so he did that whole album on crutches with his leg in the air. Um, and the lyrics are all about how you're going to have to just slow down while you while you let let your ankle get better. So it sounds um, was was therapy the name because of physical therapy? For that? <laughs> uh, yeah, and uh, I think he'd gone he'd gone through a breakup as well. So it was yeah. it was like the double meaning of the fact that he'd broken his ankle and he'd gone through a breakup. And music is a form of therapy, both when you make it and when you listen to it. Mm -hmm. Sure is for me. Stop This Game is um, kind of a reggae. Oh, it goes into a, a crazy, dubbed-out, spacey, yeah. trippy thing, doesn't it, at the end? Yeah, um, yeah so that's another one which we we've, I don't think we've ever played it on the live show. Um, but I remember that we we recorded it, did did the reggae thing at the end, and then we said to the, the engineers in the studio, who were big stoners and really into reggae, he said, do what you want to do with the end of this track. Uh, and they, they put all those crazy delay effects and everything on it and said, what do you think? And we are like, yes, that sounds great. <laughs> also, um, Treasure is kind of like a, a poppy track, but it's nice. Well, um, we didn't, we'd never heard it and because we, we don't, or we didn't really listen to pop music at that point, but we we got I don't know nine tracks or ten tracks. We knew we needed one more for the album, and we said 
Well, let's do in the, you know, like the in the old days when you would do a, a pop tune and replace replace the vocal with the, the soul jazz guitar. Let's do something like that with a modern pop song. So we're in the studio, put a message out on Facebook saying, please suggest a, a, a pop cover for us to do. We're in the studio now. We need ideas. And we had quite a good response, but maybe three or four people suggested treasure. So we said, okay, what's this? We looked it up, listened to it. And then he went, yeah, okay, I've got that down. Um, and we listened to it a couple of times, went into the studio, recorded it. And uh, I, yeah, I think I've heard our version way more than I have ever have heard the original. <laughs> I, we didn't listen to it too much because we didn't want to be, we just kind of got an essence of how to do it and get and get the groove down. But it's such a fun kind of, kind of disco-y track. Yeah. Uh, but, it's, but with that sweet soul jazz guitar sound on the top of it. Mm -hmm. And Kim, Kim Dawson, I don't know, or I don't know who that is, but, but she wails. Yeah, um, did she do two tracks? Uh, yeah, she does. She does a JB's tune type, type tune, which is Soul Sister, mm -hmm. which, is, which is partly spoken word as well um, as, as 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 a sung track. And then um, I want you to stay. So Kim is based in Denver. Eddie has been in a, a band with her called Matador Soul Sounds, which is a side project. And um, yeah, she's. She's a belter, but she can also do a kind of mini Ripperton type thing as well. Um, and I, we've had uh, some sit-ins with her when we've been playing in Denver. We've done some great covers of um, female soul funk tracks that are quite obscure, that are a real pleasure to get into. One of them being called, uh, I think there's one called Don't Boom, Don't Boom Boom, I think it's called. And if you've heard it, but it's 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 one of those old scratchy forty fives where maybe the band only ever released one or two records and were never heard of, but DJs go crazy for them. Um, she does that one really well. Anyway, move on. So at this point, Simon, we're like around the mid twenty tens. Um, you guys are doing a lot of the uh, festivals, right? I mean, uh, in the states, yeah. yeah. So like the Bonnaroo's and the we, I we never did Bonnaroo, but we um, the, the one that we were doing, there's one in California called High Sierra, which is in um, on the border with Nevada, Quincy, California, not too far from Reno. Um, that's a summer one. There was one in uh, Florida called Bear Creek Festival, which was mainly funk. Did you ever go to that or hear about it? I've heard about it and I've seen, you know, a lot of video from it and things like that. That's, yeah. That's where we did the Bernard Purdy thing. And also one year, um, they, they booked all three of the JB's horns, Fred, Wesley, Pee Wee and Maceo. Awesome. And, the, and those guys were uh, artists at large. So we had Fred sitting with us, on one of them and, and Pee Wee and we've worked with Maceo a couple of times as well and that's it's just great when the guys from the generation that inspired us are still going and we get to interact with them musically um, it's just a really pleasing because 
that's the kind of thing you never thought would happen when you get into music. Mm -hmm. um, definitely two of my all-time favorites, Fred and Maceo. You can't beat them. Yeah, I, re I remember the first time we met him. Um, may have been on a Jam Cruise. Have you heard of Jam Cruise? Mm -hmm. So, so that's a sort of jam band festival on a cruise ship. But there's there's always quite a lot of funk. And Maceo was on one year. I think it was 2007, 2008, and we were we were in the middle of a groove. And I saw Maceo show up at the side of the stage, standing next to our keyboard player, and he was nodding his head. And the and we carried on with this groove. And then he, he just had this look of determination. He opened his, his sax case, got it out, put his sax together and walked on stage and, and started blowing with us. And it, it was just like, that's Maceo. He's like, this is great. Um, and then Carl Denson joined him. And so we had Denson and Maceo at the same time. Um, and that's what the, the the kind of festivals that we were playing encourage that kind of thing. You know, they book those artists at large solely so they can go on and, and find grooves that they like and get involved with them. And so you get something that's unique and special every time. And uh, yeah, that's that's been a, a real joy. And I guess Jazz Fest in New Orleans um, is, I, I mean, it's sort of a festival. We, we never play the fairgrounds, which is the daytime thing. We always do the late night scene, but, but that over the course of two weekends, just has every single place that could be a music venue or is a music venue has music going on from 9 p.m. until six in the morning and everybody is in town and there's all sorts of special stuff that just randomly occurs and we've been doing that since 2007 I think every year so um oh did you get to uh play with any of the actual meters guys there uh, yes, we've done, hang on. So we, we first met George Porter Jr., their bass player on Jam Cruise, and he jammed with us that same year that Maceo did. Um, we, we've done a couple of shows with, um, with Ziggy, where we had two drum kits on stage and I'm looking around and there he is <laughs> just trying not to let the fact that my mind is being blown show um and we're sort of trading licks or i'm trying to play in between his his grooves and um and uh, we did a couple of shows with art neville um in the states one in new orleans for um for halloween where all of us were dressed dressed up as the a-team that was our costume and then art was just he just came as himself and uh he we just did some meters songs and um it was yeah we haven't played with leo the guitar player but although i have met him i've seen him at festivals so um yeah that was we got to know them uh, the, the the guy that we got to know best out of all of them was was ziggy i think and he lives in oakland now um, uh, but he, he was such a friendly guy and just so open and warm and, and we did a show in San Francisco and it, we, we arranged that we would do some meter songs and then he, he, he was willing to learn some of our tunes 
and he said oh i really like this one and so he, he'd gone through the albums like you have and listened to some songs and picked a few out i can't remember which ones he did but i just remember being really honored that that he would take the time to, to do that <sighs> um, oh, that's phenomenal stuff right there where you get to meet your actual heroes and play with them that's can't beat that no exactly that's exactly. pinch me uh am i awake kind of stuff yeah <clears throat> And then I'm sure you've jammed with, I mean, a lot of these uh, groups on the circuit that I'm a fan of, like, you know, Dumpster Funk and Galactic and Lettuce that you mentioned. And, yeah. Um, we, we've, cause we've, been in, we've been on the same scene as them for 10 to 15 years. And Bear Creek Festival w was one of those ones where we would, we would always be there. Galactic would always be there. Dumpster Funk and Lettuce every time. But I think that festival ran for eight years. So that that really was, uh, it was a treat because we would often be, we, we'd often play on the Friday and the Sunday and then have the Saturday just to wander around enjoying the festival, which is super fun. You know, quite often gets to a certain level and you, you when you play a festival, you just go in, do it and leave you don't get any sense of taking part in something it's just a gig but with bear creek it was like a a community and a um and that was where we we as musicians all got to know each other and got to play with each other and have late night jams and all that kind of thing yeah i remember in particular now you're rekindling my memory seeing um videos from that with like you know a combination of just such interesting players from different acts and just yeah. it's like a, a fantasy uh you know band kind of thing yeah fantasy funk band yeah that was too cool 